0: News. News. New news, news news. New York City.
1: F A Q NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. F-A-Q. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Windsor Terrace, Brooklyn, here with Christina Greer in Crown Heights. Hi
2: there,
1: Harry Siegel. Hello. Alex Lynn in Greenwich Village. Hello. And here we are. I spoke earlier today with Mark Levine, the council member and the head of the uh health committee for the council, who is in isolation right now, since he thinks he has the coronavirus. He's doing very well. He's been one of the most vocal voices in the city for weeks about what needs to happen. And unfortunately, some of what he said seems to be where we're at now. So let's jump right into that conversation, and then we'll be back to talk. I'm talking with Mark Levine the uh, chair of the city council health committee who reported on Monday that he has a fever and a dry cough and is sheltering at home with the assumption that it's uh, the coronavirus. Mark, how are you feeling now?
3: Uh, Thank you, Harry. I'm actually starting to improve, continuing to rest a lot, of course, isolating from my family, which is probably the hardest part of all this. But um, I'm confident
1: that uh, another day or two of rest and I'll be back in action. I'm glad to hear that. Um, Drink fluids, rest. While while I have you on the phone, you you had been sounding the alarm in New York from very early on about the the urgency to respond. Um, At this point, we're already behind. Governor Cuomo was just saying that we're going to need 40,000 ICU beds statewide. We have 3,000. How is New York doing? How are the hospitals doing? And, And what should New Yorkers know and be, be thinking about and doing themselves right now? Yes.
3: Well, I think that the intense focus on the amount of testing and the number of positive test results or confirmed cases is becoming a distraction. The real battlefield now is hospitals, and that's the data we have to be watching. We are just starting to get numbers on what really matters, which is the number of hospitalizations, the uh, number of people in intensive care. Um, Our last figures are 2,850 people hospitalized with coronavirus in New York City and 660 in intensive in New York City. We do not know how many people are on ventilators, Um, but we do know the most grim statistic of all, which is 192 fatalities. Those are the numbers we need to watch, and it appears they're all growing rapidly. It appears that we are increasing hospitalization by 25% a day, that continues. We'd be at over 50,000 hospitalized within 14 days. Um, Normally our hospital system has 20,000 beds. So that gives you a, a sense of the scale of the overrunning of the system, which we are facing. This is going to be unlike anything we've ever experienced as New Yorkers. It's going to change everything about how all of us have to access medical care of any sort. And it means that we need to, if at all possible, stay out of the medical system unless we are truly, truly sick. That includes also people who are experiencing corona symptoms. Luckily, most of us will not need medical attention. If you are fortunate to have relatively mild symptoms of fever and cough, then you should rest at home. And as you said, Harry, hydrate. You can take medicine for your fever and your cough, and in most cases you will self-heal. If after three or four days you're not improving, then yes, call a doctor. If you have difficulty breathing at any point, yes, call a doctor, but other than that, there's nothing you need to do except for rest. And actually, I would expand it beyond people with corona symptoms, you're gonna have to change how you think about virtually every medical condition. There's not going to be any annual physicals during this period. Uh, if you or your child might have strep throat, uh, you might not get, and you probably shouldn't even pursue an in-person appointment, perhaps access telemedicine. Uh, they might not be able to do a, a throat culture, so you might get a prescription for antibiotics just based on the hunch that it's strep throat. Uh, there's not going to be any knee replacement surgeries. There might not be any colonoscopies. This is going to be a period in which every single resource has to be reserved for those who are in dire peril because coronavirus, and the unavoidable unavoidable additional flow of patients who are experiencing
1: things like heart attack or appendicitis um, that are also going to need acute care. So I was just reading this Lizzie Whittacombe article at The New Yorker about the growing chaos inside New York's hospitals. And one of the uh, several disturbing things that comes up there that came to mind, as you were saying, that... Are patients who are going to the hospital and are, are being returned home because their needs don't seem urgent at that point, and then are ending up hospitalized days later. Understanding what you're saying and the need for isolation, uh, both to stop from right. from spreading the virus and to stop from right. overwhelming the healthcare system. What is your sense of the thresholds at which people need to to, to go outside yeah. and get to a doctor or an ER? Right,
3: right. Look, anybody who has an underlying complication should consult with the doctor immediately upon experiencing symptoms. That is not most of us, thankfully, but those who are cancer patients, people who have lung disorders like COPD, um, any kind of immune deficiencies, they, they, they should consult with the doctor immediately upon the onset of symptoms. I don't believe they should show up to an emergency room at that point because of the risk to themselves and others by going out in public. Uh, But yes, the consultation is in order. For most of the rest of us, it's about listening to your body. And honestly, you are going to know when you're having breathing problems, probably even before one of those high-tech oxygenation monitors on your finger would know. You need to listen to your body. And difficulty breathing should prompt you to contact a doctor immediately. It is unfortunate that people are being sent home, but honestly, every single chair and a waiting room, every single minute of of a nurse's time just has to be reserved for people who are the most sick. And so it's better that you not go to the hospital until you face the circumstances I described. The truth is that that people can crash with this condition, assuming I have coronavirus, and not not 100% sure I do, but if I do, I'm lucky because I appear to be recovering after just three or four days. But there are people who take a turn for the worse quite suddenly. So uh, you need to have a phone ready to call, but you don't need to be sitting in an ER if all you have is fever and a cough. You need to be home resting. And, and that's tough advice, but there's just no other way we can maintain a functioning health system unless every
1: single resource is reserved for people who are the most sick. Finally, I, I see that Governor Cuomo just mentioned that people can get tested if they have to be at one at any hospital. Now that we have that capacity, uh, you were saying a minute ago that testing is not the uh, the priority right now. Can you uh, can you elaborate? This is such
3: an important
1: point. Testing at this stage of the crisis
3: needs to be reserved for people who are sick enough to be hospitalized or those who have special medical complications and are directed to test by their doctor. For the rest of us, over-testing has actually probably been accelerating the spread of this virus. It has sent thousands of people who should have been resting at home out to public locations where they have been either contaminating others if they have the virus or exposing themselves to contamination if they themselves have not yet actually contracted it. And the truth is, this is the key point, that unless you are extremely sick, a positive test gives you zero useful information because there is no treatment such as with the flu. There's no Tamiflu medicine. All you can do is rest at home unless and until you require a more serious intervention in the hospital. So you're taking a risk through testing that yields no benefit on the other side, We don't need broad testing anymore to know that New York City is an epicenter of this epidemic and that we have had extremely broad spread of the virus in New York City. One day epidemiologists will do the analysis and they'll tell us just how many of us had the virus. That'll be interesting to know, but it's not useful actionable information now. So the truth is there should be no more outpatient testing. Testing should be reserved for those who are in uh, acute care in hospitals or are directed by a doctor because of special circumstances. And that's why um, the health department has specifically instructed providers to no longer advertise, encourage, or promote, that's their words, outpatient testing.
1: Thank you again for the time. Last question here. I think 60% of the, the national cases are in New York, and some of that, I'm sure, has to do with testing as opposed to People who actually have and are potentially spreading the virus. A lot of New Yorkers have, and are considering leaving the city if they can. Yesterday, Dr. Fauci said any New Yorker who does so needs to self-quarantine for 14 days. But I would appreciate your thoughts for New Yorkers who are thinking about this for themselves and their families about sheltering in place and about leaving, both in terms of their own health care, in terms of potentially spreading this, and what to do is that—that's something I think a lot of us are thinking about. Right. I don't think that New York will ultimately be seen as a unique
3: case in this epidemic. I think we will be seen as a preview of what other parts of the country will experience, unless there's a drastic national action, such as imposing a shelter-in-place order nationally. And uh, unfortunately, President Trump. Uh, appears to be uh, inexplicably moving in the other direction, dangerously so. I think that New Yorkers who flee to uh, other parts of the country may be fooling themselves. They may be entering places where this epidemic is mounting, places without a, such a sophisticated medical system. We do have here assets which are really the envy of the world in the caliber of the medical institutions, the size and strength of the public hospitals, the caliber of our public health team at the health department so I'm not encouraging people to leave if they if they do feel obligated to because of family concerns or for other reasons then unfortunately they do need to heed the advice of quarantining for one side of the city but honestly all of us at this point Harry should assume that we have been exposed to the coronavirus and all of us need to take the same precautions no one should be gallivanting around town under the assumption that they have not yet been infected. All of us, except for unavoidable needs like food and pharmacy uh, and and solo exercise, should be staying at home. And uh, that would be true if you left the city as well. I generally don't even use the term quarantining anymore because I think all of us uh, it need to be in an indefinite state of sheltering at home.
1: Mark, thank you for taking the time and uh, just wishing you a speedy and easy uh, recovery here. And um, we'll speak again. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. Good speaking with you. Be safe. It's been another, another one of those days. Um, we just had Donald Trump saying, uh, I spoke to the mayor about that, Mayor de Blasio. He was happy. It's hard not to be happy with the job we're doing. That I can tell you. About the four thousand ventilators he says, are coming to New York, about literally the same time that Bill de Blasio was saying he was very unhappy that the money in this two trillion dollar with the T federal package that would be coming to New York State and New York City. hospitals are starting to get severely overloaded, uh, most notably in Elmhurst, but around the city. And things are uh, building up as the president is uh, suggesting that maybe this isn't the Chinese flu, it's the New York flu, as he's talking about it. So here we are. Alex, you were there virtually for the mayor's digital now press conference uh, this evening. Uh, Can you fill us in on the latest?
2: Yeah, I was also there for Cuomo's briefing in the morning. It seems like a lot of people's days are now centering around Cuomo's briefing in the morning and de Blasio's briefing in the afternoon. Cuomo laid out some pretty stark numbers, adding up that we need uh, 40,000 ventilators in this city and that we have, including the 4,000 that was just sent to Trump, we're only at like 11,000. And he really stressed the urgency that we were going to need more um, in a shorter amount of time than at this point, we think people are going to be able to produce. His language was incredibly guarded and preferential to the president, and I can only imagine why, but it seemed that he was still pushing to to lean more on the Defense Production Act. Now, this afternoon, de Blasio also stressed that we needed more ventilators and more supplies. And a lot of things are coming down the pike that are pretty scary. Elmhurst being overrun. People are seeing a makeshift morgue in front of Bellevue. The city's like, you know, it's a pretty iconic hospital for New York. And, um, and
1: that's where the makeshift morgue was after, after 9-11, the outside yes. refrigerated unit.
2: Yeah. And uh, so he's he was more... Upset today about the fact that the stimulus package, the first kind of help and monetary relief from the federal government, is allocating only one, something like what, $1.3 billion to New York City and not very much to New York State. And Cuomo also mentioned that this morning. It really, I think it hit a lot of New Yorkers today and a lot of people were fearful and wondering like are we are we just not going to get what we need as the wave is breaking over us and I think you've heard you have saw a lot of that fear today not just um on social media but kind of in the in the tone of the streets It's has it's a really sad day out there and that
1: I think worse, worse to come, it, it appears uh, we're having not a exponential, but a continuous rate of uh, growth in the number of cases. And they've now pretty much exploded at Rikers.
2: They have exploded at Rikers. Uh, Legal Aid sent out the press conference that Rikers now has seven times the rate of infection of the rest of the city. And the commissioner of health and hospitals, Dr. Michael Katz said that they were not going to build a hospital or, you know, have like a treatment facility, a hardcore treatment facility on Rikers. That's not in the plan as of now. If someone shows symptoms, they isolate them. And uh, apparently if anyone really needs to go to the hospital or, you know, possibly needs something like an ICU bed, they're going to take them to reported by the Times, I think, the Elmhurst Hospital. There is some like good news. I guess I should probably mention that there's a bunch of people that have found ways that don't just stroke people's vanity (laughs) to, like, actually help. Uh, There are motorcycle people in full gear and helmets and, like, all covered up and taking every precaution, delivering the personal protective gear that people bought for themselves as this was coming and they pick it up. They, they sanitize it, they wipe it down and they deliver it to the hospitals that need it. And, um, they're, you know, organizing on Twitter masks for doctors. There's another woman who, um, found a bunch of people who weren't using their Metro cards so that she could then like put a spreadsheet together and, send those to health workers or essential workers that need them. Uh because not a lot of kids were showing up to the regional enrichment centers, the schools, or or less kids than they thought, they were able to open up the child care opportunity for like grocers now, pharmacists, uh, parole officers, like a bunch of people that weren't covered under the essential workers now can like take their kids to these enrichment centers. And so there's a lot of organizing going on in the city the right way.
1: It's nice to have something heartening to appreciate from from New Yorkers. as People are figuring out what it is they can be doing as this is really building up. But Elmer's, which is one of the public hospitals like Bellevue, there's 13 people who have died there in a 545-bed hospital in the last 24 hours. So one doctor called it apocalyptic. So... People people who are here and are healthy really need to be doing what they can and figuring out what they can do. Uh, Christina, you're you're teaching again. How is that going at this point? How many (laughs) students are here?
4: Uh, Well, my students are everywhere from Germany, California, Las Vegas, Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, They all seem to be doing pretty well. I mean, I did notice that some of them were on their phones and not using laptops. Some of them definitely had weak internet connections. So I'm trying to be really cognizant of the fact that not everyone is going home to the same environment. There's some options to take classes pass fail or choose a grade. And certain students are really concerned about their grades. And I'm trying to just help them understand that you know every single student across the world will have an asterisk next to their spring 2020 <laughs> finals uh, final grade. And so helping to model, again, the behavior that I want them to see and to to emulate, which is a level of calm and and really just kind of using this time to reevaluate and kind of process the magnitude of what's going on in a healthy way and really realize, like, what's important. Um, I did invite my fish to class, and we had two dogs and a cat come to class, which was nice. Um, But I think that they're just a little overwhelmed, and a lot of them left pretty quickly, before spring break, and uh, I think many of them thought that this would kind of just not necessarily be over. But uh, many did not think that the leaving campus um, in early March would be the last time they were on campus until possibly the fall. And we're still planning as though classes will go on in the fall. We're all going under the assumption that we'll be in a much better state by then. But it's actually not a guarantee.
1: Not not to be too morbid, but of course, as we've all now learned a lot about the Spanish flu, for instance, we know that sometimes these things return in the fall Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, significantly. So we need to get through this first wave and see where this is at. I don't think that either uh, Fordham or Columbia yet have canceled their commencements, but I know they're considering that. It's the last I Uh,
4: know. Yeah, I believe Fordham has. I I keep getting Fordham and Tufts confused because I'm, I'm sort of closely allied with my (laughs) <laughs> with my uh, alma mater, just because I'm still pretty active there. Um, I need to look that up. But right now, I'm just going under the assumption that um, all yep. major activities are canceled, uh, just because, you know, at our Fordham graduation, uh, we, we celebrate at the Rose Hill campus. So what's beautiful about the day is that all Fordham undergraduates and a few of the graduate programs um, graduate on the Great Lawn together. Um, the president, Father McShane gives, uh, the prayer and we, you know, we sort of, we celebrate as one university and then we go to different parts of the Rose Hill campus to have our smaller, smaller college celebrations. So on any given graduation, we could have roughly 30 to 40,000 people, um, in one space. I don't necessarily think that that will be happening, um, but uh, I'd have to check my, my deluge of emails, actually. Um, it might actually be sitting in my inbox to let me know one way or the other. Um, I think the main thing I'm just uh, communicating with my students is that, you know, yes, learning is important. Obviously, we're still in class. <laughs> They've still paid for classes. I'm available. and still doing office hours and talking about credits. Uh, but also just, you know, I think a lot of universities want to just continue as business as usual which I get. There are a lot of students who need stability for sure, but this isn't business as usual. And what I try to just gently put to my students is that as of now, everyone is healthy and happy and their family members are healthy as well, which is a blessing. However, we don't know what the next month or two look like for a lot of my students and their family members. So let's just have a sense of flexibility um, in, in how we operate for the next few months. Good morning. This is Christina Greer in self-isolation in Brooklyn. It's FAQ NYC. I'm here with Professor Heath Brown from City University of New York, John Jay College, and the Grad Center. He's written several books, but his most recent book is uh, Immigrants and Electoral Politics. Heath, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, Inauspicious times to be on, but I'm such a Frequent listener of your podcast and and excited to be on to talk about this. So so thanks for having me on.
4: Thank you. Well, where are you calling from?
0: So I am in Brooklyn. We live in uh, the Kensington Windsor Terrace section of Brooklyn, uh, which is is nearly completely shut down. Almost nobody on the streets. Um, but uh, in this part of Brooklyn, we're all we're all trying to get on and stay at home and do our best to uh, abide by all these all these rules that we're living in right now.
4: Yeah, new rules. Um, definitely new rules. Well, back in the day when we didn't have to social socially isolate, we had lunch and you mentioned to me that you were working on a book on homeschooling and I thought that you would be the perfect guest to just tell us a little bit uh, about the homeschooling movement across the United States and then just kind of tell us uh, if that movement is unique for say cities versus people in rural areas and and just any of your thoughts on homeschooling writ large right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you choose what you do research on long before the project finishes obviously, Um, but you choose it, you know, during one time period. So this is a project that started a number of years ago uh, related to interest that I've had since graduate school on charter schools and charter school education. Uh, and and the politics of charter schools, and that's something I did back in a long time ago when the charter school movement was starting. Charter school movement uh, has always been a very city-based education reform. These small independent schools that are separated from the public school system, yet still kind of connected in some ways, has been a real city thing in Washington, D.C., for example, and New York City as well. Fast forward a number of years, and my interests have shifted over to this area of homeschooling, which has does have a uh, a place in cities, but is also very prominent in rural and suburban America. And and uh, this thing that we're going through right now, I think, allows a lot of people to experience what nearly two million uh, children are used to on a on a daily basis. There's nearly two million homeschooled students, according to some estimates, uh, that have been um, educating in their living rooms with um, uh, some success and some failures. But uh, uh, it's a really interesting education phenomenon with a very fascinating political history as well.
4: And why do you think the homeschooling movement never really took off in cities?
0: You know, it's, it's not that it's absent from cities. And, and we can talk in a little bit about, you know, it, how it's um, uh, featured in New York City, um but i think for for a good portion of the the community of homeschoolers it aligns with with other things in their lives and so there is a a strong um there there's sort of been two threads of the social uh, movement behind homeschooling um that are politically distinct um one has been a, a libertarian thrust in the country that has a long history of people wanting to do it on their own Uh, without the help of government and educating in the home separate from the public uh, school system has appealed to some portion of the families at home school. The other uh, uh, group that this has appealed to strongly uh, is a social conservative uh, ideology and belief system that's very closely connected to uh, the politics of religion. Um, Those are two movements that have been quite popular in rural and suburban America, also to some extent in cities. But I think it's those two impulses, uh, the impulses to kind of do it on one's own and also to infuse social conservative values into the classroom uh, that has appealed to many families that homeschool, not exclusively. And there, there are many homeschool families that don't abide by those two different ideologies. But that's that's been a much of the thrust of this. And, uh, to the extent that those, those two phenomena are more popular in rural communities than cities, I think you have one of the explanations for why this is. There's also some, some of the, the basic kind of practicalities of this. The distance to school is a factor for some families. And if you're living in a rural community where the distance to school is not a subway ride or a walk, um, but a travel 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes or longer, uh, the appeal of homeschooling, especially at the, the early grades, is one that families have seen as very attractive, and, and that hasn't always been the case in cities. Mm-hmm. There's some other reasons as well, but I think those are some of the most important ones.
4: I've been talking to a lot of New Yorkers who have really been struggling with you know teaching online. Would you make a real distinction between, say, homeschooling and teaching online, especially when we think about younger kids who can't even type just yet?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, one of the funny things that I've observed in the world of homeschooling is that it originally emerged in the 1980s and, and 1990s as a way for parents to say, uh, we we want to be in, in near complete control over the education of our children. We want to control the books that they read, um, the, the material that they learn from, uh, even the subject matters and the way in those subject matters are taught. And so it was this very, very personalized form of education where the, the parents uh, wanted to control everything uh, that the students uh, were going to be learning. Over time, and as, as digital technologies have changed, an increasing number of homeschooled children are learning through some form of distance-based education. So what's going on right now with families who hadn't previously educated at home, turning to instructional videos, material that they could collect up from a website or from uh, uh, an educational program on, on cable television, I think is what a lot of homeschool families are doing. Now, with that said, there are very um, sophisticated and involved uh, homeschool curriculums that, that families can use and do use that are provided uh, in various electronic forms. I don't think most families... Uh, that are trying this for the first time right now are going to be doing that. But that is a big part of the existing homeschool educational philosophy right now, which is to use distance to to help a kid who is, uh, you know, far from other resources.
4: Um, do you have any tips for New York City parents or parents who are listening to this podcast uh, on how to kind of get through these next few weeks slash months of teaching their kids whilst also working and, and trying to maintain during a global pandemic?
0: You know, the, one of the first things I'd say is that while homeschooling hasn't been as prominent in, in New York City as it is in states like North Carolina, there are plenty of families in, in New York uh, that, that have been homeschooling for a long time. Those are, those are assets. Uh, those are potential experts to turn to. And fortunately, the homeschool community, while it might appear to be isolated and and disconnected, in fact, is quite the opposite. Uh, For every homeschool family, um, uh, there are uh, lots of of organizations, many of them virtual, uh, providing help and assistance to, to families. And they've been doing so for a long time if I was, uh, and I am a parent, uh, trying to educate at home, I think I would turn to those organizations, um, not necessarily the ones that are in other parts of the country, but the ones that are that are right here in New York, mm-hmm. uh, that have been helping tie families together. Now, uh, the, the uh, sort of the the cruel irony of this is one of the things that those groups push families to do is to use the city as the classroom, Mm -hmm. and so um, field trips and museums and and trips to the beach are what a lot of homeschooling takes the form of, which is a way to have the student's education be very experiential. Cruelly, that isn't an option for families here in New York City. Our wonderful cultural institutions, which, which can provide so much to families all the time, can't right now, and so that has to be turned into the, into the household. Now, with that, that said, I think there still are um, incredible resources uh, for families here in New York that have, that have um, vast experience doing this, um, and especially for special needs students. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I've seen is that in New York, the homeschooling community has been excellent on providing for the um, special needs. And and those are the students and those are the families that I would uh, think would want to seek out those homeschooling families here the most.
4: Keith, thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: So my own weird experiment with homeschooling this week, my wife and I have spent a lot of time scheduling Zoom meetings for our five-year-old and helping our eight-year-old type responses to uh, PowerPoint presentations. So it's been in the Siegel household, at least, a bit of a uh, rough learning curve. And as problems go, that's plenty of small potatoes. But I know that right now, a lot of New Yorkers who haven't been hurt directly by the virus yet are experiencing all sorts of fallout from the uh, closure of the city and the moment we're at. Alex, I know you've been looking at and reporting on some of that this week. Uh, Tell us about what you've been saying.
2: Well, For one thing, a few methadone clinics for our New Yorkers that are either currently having issues with substance abuse. Obviously, this is a a really intense time. Isolation for any for anybody with substance abuse uh, issues is a is a big problem. But uh, some of the New Yorkers that are on like, say, the methadone program, or they use a replacement like Suboxone, or even if they use a blocker, like an opioid blocker, um, a lot of these clinics are giving out their medications for the next month and then closing their doors. So some of the clinics have reported that they're basically giving the doses to the people who need them. Now, a couple of things can happen with this, either the person who's newly utilizing something like a methadone. Program to get themselves off of heroin or fentanyl or oxy, those people will generally not be given like huge amounts of doses at once for obvious reasons. You can sell them, you can trade them, you can take more than one to get extra high. And so, what a lot of people are worried about is what you're going to see in about two and a half weeks with a bunch of people who have a month's worth of methadone is that there's going to be a lot of people out on the street hurting and no one has any idea kind of the dangers of just like your average drug addict in the daily hustle of like getting dope. There are a lot of dealers who don't use that might just close up shop. There are a lot of dealers who might rob the drug addict. So that's that's a, a weird issue to look at and like keep conscious of, especially as more and more cops are calling in sick, et cetera, et cetera. So what we did see with Zoom meetings and like 12-step programs and alternative programs, um, not just 12-step, but like Buddhist programs, whatever, these impromptu anonymous meeting groups have set up a bunch of Zoom meetings. And it's really kind of amazing to see a bunch of strangers that generally don't know each other's last names get together quicker than our governments have been able to and put this together together. There's a couple issues with that, though. Zoom itself has some pretty interesting habits with uh, data and privacy. So a lot of people are now just figuring that out and just looking at that. And there's some ways in which you can configure the privacy settings to lessen the impact. But a lot of people who are in anonymous programs to treat their drug addiction are, are struggling with that. One of the biggest things, though, one of the most interesting things I've seen is that a lot of the clubhouses in the city are closing down and that's a big problem. You have a lot of our older population with nowhere to go. They, A lot of people in the shelter systems use these clubhouses to do service, to stay sober, and also to stay safe if they're, say, assigned to a shelter that isn't terribly safe. Um, and there's Older people who don't have access to a computer or Wi-Fi. There are people who don't even have telephones. How do you find people to check up on them and make sure they're okay if they don't have a phone or if they're in the shelter system and you don't actually know their last name? People who have known each other for like 10, 15 plus years sometimes don't even know each other's last name in this in this situation. And they just never counted on the fact that some of these rooms that were open since the 70s without ever closing, not for blackouts, not for 9-11, not for hurricanes, not for nothing, are now completely shuttered. And I think it's hurting a lot of people. It's a cause for concern, for sure. But I think there's a lot of people out there just trying their best to check up on New York's most vulnerable, New York's elderly. Again, it's hard to check up on people when you can't touch them. You can't deliver groceries without wiping them down first. You don't want to make people sick. So everything like that is being worked out.
1: Well, we've got plenty more to come. We'll see you here next week. We may be posting shorter episodes in the interim, just as we're speaking to people over the phone, please go to faq.nyc to get Alex's very useful updates of each day's developments, sometimes twice a day. And uh whew.
2: big shout out to Adam Levy, my new husband and my quarantine mate who is also helping with the news roundups uh, for the end of the day that include like links to other local news sources and things like that.
1: That's right. Mazel tov to the happy couple. Read all about them in the Daily News and New York Post. And if you listen last week, I can't believe we saved this until the very end. Uh, we, we have our first FAQ wedding and both you guys have bylines up there right now. F-
4: This has been FAQ NYC brought to you by Harry Siegel and Christina Greeter reporting from various parts of Brooklyn. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn reporting in from the village. And thank you to Adam Kamara, who has mixed and mastered this episode. Normally, we come to you from the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU. But for the remainder of our social isolation, we'll be coming to you from various parts of New York City. Stay safe.